0: take your Bibles and join me in 1 Samuel chapter number 4, please? 1 Samuel chapter number 4 is where we'll find our text this morning. And uh, I I don't know if you're in the habit of standing as we read the scriptures, but I would invite you to do so as we uh, open the Word of God and as we read uh, our text here together today. Would you look with me in verse number 1, where the Bible says this, And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out against the Philistines to battle and pitched beside Ebenezer, and the Philistines pitched in Aphek. And the Philistines put themselves in array against Israel, and when they joined battle, Israel was smitten before the Philistines, and they slew of the army in the field about 4,000 men. So again, as we're, as we're reading through the story, understand that, of course, there's, a, there's a, really a generations-long battle that exists in the Old Testament between the nation of Israel and the nation known as the people of the Philistines. And they have engaged in battle once again here in this fourth chapter. Both of them have pitched uh, their encampments on on two different sides of what we presume to be a a valley. And uh, the Bible says that when they engaged in battle on day number one, 4,000 men in the nation of Israel died, uh, succumbed to this battle. The Bible doesn't tell us how many died of the Philistines, but we know it wasn't that many uh, because the Philistines won day one in the battle. And we see some adjustments that are going to be made in verse number three, look at what the Bible says. And when the people were come into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Wherefore hath the Lord smitten us today before the Philistines? So think about this almost like, a, like, like halftime of a, of a ball game. The first half, two, two teams engage in c- competition. And, and we, 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 the, the halftime whistle blows, and they ret- retreat to the locker room. And one team is leading in the scoreboard, and the other team is not. And so now it's time to make some adjustments. And so the elders of Israel are are, are saying, okay, what's gone wrong here? What have we done wrong? Why did we suffer such losses today? What can we do moving forward? What differences can we we implement that maybe can allow us to uh, retake the lead in the battle on the next day? Notice the answer they came up with. They said this, let us fetch the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of Shiloh unto us that when it cometh among us, it may save us out of the hand of our enemies. So in the, in, in the game of football, uh, the, the coach may say, well, let's, let's change from what we're doing. Let's change from a man-to-man defense, and let's implement a zone defense. Uh, let's see if that maybe will help us a little bit. Let's insert this guy into the lineup. Uh, let's run this set of plays. Uh, let's get back to doing what we do best. They got us out of our rhythm in the first half. But in the second half, let's let's do what we we know. This is the adjustments that are made at halftime. Here's what the children of Israel determined. Here's what we're missing. We're missing the Ark of the Covenant. Let's, Let's bring the Ark of the Covenant with us into battle tomorrow, and that will be the difference. That will save us out of the hands of the Philistines. I want to preach to you a message that I've entitled this morning, Fetch the Ark. It comes right there out of verse number three. Fetch the ark. And I want to I try to illustrate and demonstrate why that sounded like a really good idea, but in reality, that's not what they were missing. And they were missing something besides just a, a box, a piece of furniture, but they were missing something much greater, and that would be the blessing and the presence of Almighty God. Father, would you bless us today as we attempt to preach this message? Lord, would you fill us with your Holy Spirit's power, how we need you during this hour. Thank you for this great host of young people who have dedicated and consecrated their lives to serve you, Lord, in the the ministry. I'm preaching to future missionaries and pastors and assistant pastors, youth directors and Christian school teachers, wives and mothers secretaries who will Ministrate in local churches lord. Thank you for this great group of folks. May you bless them today May the truths that we find in this passage of scripture may they be so very helpful in all of our lives. We pray in Jesus name Amen. Thank you. You may be seated H- Have you ever met have you ever met someone who is really superstitious? Now you you know what it, you know what that's like I I remember when I was when I was a young person uh, i, I don 't suppose people do this as much anymore uh, i 'm forty one and, and so i 'm from a little bit of a different generation, I suppose than most of you are. But I remember that there were times in which I would run into people who, who carried something in their pocket known as a rabbit 's foot. How many of you ever heard of something like that so, or maybe met someone who carried one uh, th- there was this little, It was this little thing, and they would they would carry it in their pocket and and, and they, literally they did it because they thought that it provided them with some with some level of, of extra luck, or you know, they were they were superstitious. Um, I, I can remember I can remember playing some sports when I was in when I was in high school, and, and there were certain superstitions that guys uh, would would adapt. And uh, if they had a really good game uh, in the previous game, and they were wearing a certain pair of socks, they say, well, these are my lucky socks. I got to wear these for the next game because I scored twenty five points in them. Uh, in the last game, and, and, and so i got I to wear these some guys would even go so far as to say i 'm not even going to wash these socks because there was something there was something good that was happening when I put those socks on in that previous game, or you know they would wear a pair of sneakers or a pair of you know soccer cleats or whatever that uh, that were really worn and torn and probably should have been discarded, but because they, they had worn them all those years and they had grown comfortable and familiar with them, they just Refuse to uh, to to, uh, to to get rid of them and 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 to make those those adjustments. Um, some some would have a lucky number, and uh, you know this is my number. I got to have this number on my jersey, uh, and and this is what this is what I've got to have, or a lucky shirt, or, or or whatever the case might be. You know, the nation of Israel that uh, we we discover here in the first uh, in the first book of Samuel in the fourth chapter was a a nation that was coming out of a, of a period of the judges, and, and it was really a, t- a troubled place. Now The Bible tells us in Judges chapter number 21 and verse number 25, that in those, in those days, in that era, every man did that which was right in his own eyes. There was no king in Israel. In essence, every man was his own king. Every man just kind of ran in life the way that he saw fit, the way that he thought and, and, and thought was best. And the, certainly the birth of Samuel would, Uh, would bridge the gap from the period of the judges to the period uh, of the kings and certainly would provide a more centralized law and leader. But certainly our text reveals a somewhat renegade period in the nation of Israel's history in which every man did whatever was right and whatever was pleasing in his own eyes. And the fourth chapter of this book reveals the Israelites locked into battle with their long-standing foe, the Philistines. These neighboring groups of people fought regularly throughout the Old Testament, and we're familiar with that. You're a Bible college student, and you know that the Philistines play a pretty major role in the Old Testament narrative, and certainly they're a thorn in the side of the nation of Israel over a period of centuries, much less decades or generations. And of course, as we already stated, the initial encounter in this particular battle did not go the way of the children of Israel, the Bible says that the Philistines put themselves in array in verse number two, and they slew of the army of the Israelites in the field about four thousand men. You know we read these stories, and we don 't give it a whole lot of thought, but think about that for a moment four thousand men it 's four thousand dads, four thousand sons, four thousand husbands, four thousand men, human beings who 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 died in a a battle, and and, and so they they come together and they determine, as they're licking their wounds, how how do we get back on top? How do we get back in control of this particular battle? And as they begin to plot out their strategy for the next day and the days to come, they concluded that their loss was due to a crucial missing element, and that crucial missing element was the Ark of the Covenant let's just talk briefly about the Ark of the Covenant this morning. Let me give you a word about the Ark. God gave the Israelites instruction concerning the Ark of the Covenant, or often also referred to as the Ark of the Testimony, in the book of Exodus. In the 25th chapter and the 10th verse, God tells the Moses, He says, I want you to make, a, make an Ark, and, and here's how it's to be made, and here's what you're to do. The Ark was to be a piece of furniture that was to be used in the worship of God. It was to be made of wood, according to verse number 10 of Exodus 25. And then it was to be covered with pure gold, both within and without, according to verse number 11. And inside this this chest or this box was to be the divine law given by God to Moses on the tables of stone. We read of that in Exodus chapter 25 in verse number 16. The very tablet that God wrote the law on was to be placed inside the Ark of the Covenant. Hebrews chapter 9 actually reveals some other elements that were found in the Ark of the Covenant. The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse number 4 that the Ark also housed a golden pot from which the people would have collected manna during the wilderness wanderings. And so there would have been been the tables of stone in the Ark of the Covenant, and then there would have also been a a golden vessel, a a pot, a, a bowl, in which they would have gone out each morning uh, as, the, uh, as they were arising for their day and they would have collected manna and put it in that pot and that manna would have been fresh and good for them throughout that day. But any manna that was collected above and beyond that, you know the rest of the story, that it would, be, it, it, it would rot and it would be putrid by the next morning. So they were not to gather too much. They were just to trust God for that day. And so the ark would have housed the golden pot that held the manna. There was a final element that we know of the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter number 9 uh, that was also in the Ark of the Covenant. That was Aaron's rod that budded. Aaron's rod that budded. And you may remember that there was a coup that was attempted uh, from the leadership of Moses and Aaron. And God said this. God said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to give your staffs. And I, uh, I want Moses and Aaron to give their staff. And, and, and whichever, uh, whichever staff produces the, the budding there, that's the one that I have, that I have said, this is the person that I want to lead my people. We read of that in Numbers chapter number 17, verses 5 to 10. And so Aaron's rod, the next morning when they came out, it had it had budded and, and there was growth on that rod that was not on the rods of the other men that were attempting to lead. And of course, what God was saying was God was saying, this is, this is who I've chosen. These are the people that I have chosen to lead my people and to kind of to, to, to stifle the, the coup or the overthrow that was being attempted there. And so, again, in this, in this Ark of the Covenant, it's a box, it's a chest, and it's covered with gold, and inside are the, uh, are the testimony, the, 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 the commandments. And there's the golden pot that was used to collect the manna, and there was Aaron's rod that budded. This Ark was to be placed, according to Scripture, it was to sit in the holiest of holies. And this ark would literally, the top of it would literally be the mercy seat on which the blood was sprinkled by the high priest yearly, making atonement for the sins of the people. And so you are not unfamiliar at all with the Ark of the Covenant. It takes a central stage in our, in our Old Testament regarding the worship of the children of Israel. Uh, it is a very, very significant piece of furniture. The Ark was the center of Hebrew religion and worship, and it was the one place, it was the one place where the presence of God dwelt during the period of the Old Testament. Yet as we come to 1 Samuel chapter number 4, we discover something that is troubling, don't we? Sadly, during the era of the judges, the Ark of the Covenant, listen, had become nothing more than a good luck charm for the people of God. They wanted to live any which way they wanted to, every man a king, everyone doing that which is right in his own eyes to live that type of a life and yet still be able to access some good luck charm when the opportunity arose and when they needed it. They still wanted to be able to invoke God's name and his power in a moment when it was needed and God was in the, certainly the beginning stages of a revival using this man by the name of Samuel, to call his people back to himself. And yet, and yet, this is, the, this is the tone, this is the era in which we're discovering the children of Israel to be in. The need for revival was clearly revealed by the Israelites' approach to the Ark of the Covenant or testimony in the scripture passage. Can I just be real frank with you? I'm afraid that there are times when our approach to the Lord and to his work is very similar to the approach that the children of Israel had to the Ark of the Covenant during this era. In other words, we, we, we think that what we're missing in our ministry efforts is, is some, some list of rules. It's, it's some box that we have always seen ministry accomplished in. And what we, listen, what we miss sight of is, is not, listen, that we need a box. What we miss sight of is what we, we need Jesus that we need the Lord, that we need the presence of God and his power and his Holy Spirit in our lives more than we need a box of furniture. I want you to consider with me several thoughts regarding the the approach of the children of Israel in this passage of scripture to the Ark of the Covenant. Number one, I want to say this. I believe that their, their approach to the Ark was marred by their spiritual leaders. Their approach to the Ark was marred by their spiritual leaders You're well well aware that that there was a high priest during these days. His name was Eli. And I think Eli was probably a pretty good man with a pretty good heart. But there was a weakness in Eli's life, and that was in his own home and his own family. The Bible tells us that he had two boys. Their names were Hophni and Phinehas. These young men were wicked men. And yet Eli refused to restrain them. Eli refused to deal with them. These guys had made, listen, they had made the worship uh, that was to be done in the tabernacle. They had profaned it. They had made it a wicked, vile thing. Some of the things that these guys had done, we read of it in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. In fact, verse number 12, the Bible says, Now the sons of Eli were sons of Belial. They were sons of the devil. They were wicked. The Bible says they knew not the Lord, and yet these guys were involved in the, in the priestly sacrifices, these guys were involved in the worship of God. And as a result, because of Eli permitting these men to continue to serve and to lead the people in worship, uh, the, the vast majority of the elders of Israel and the people of God, listen, they had developed a disdain for the worship of God. And Let me just pause here for just a moment. And let me just say a word or two to you who are preparing to lead. You who are preparing to serve God and to lead churches and to lead the gospel effort into the days to come, which, by the way, are critical days. They're last days. Listen, we, we need you now more than ever. We desperately need pastors who are committed to the word of God and are committed uh, to discovering the power of God, not in, not in some list of rules or regulations or in some, uh, some form of a denomination But people, listen, who know how to get a hold of God and know the Lord and know His Word and know the Holy Spirit of God and are operating through the power of the Holy Spirit. The book of Jeremiah has much to say about pastoral abuse and failures. Jeremiah chapter 2 and chapter 10 and chapter 12 and chapter number 23, we find that God has some specific curses that are associated with men who are, are leading as pastors, leading as priests, and leading as ministry leaders and yet they abuse the office in which they're serving. Can I say that when those who are tasked with leading God's people fail to lead biblically, it is almost always a rule that those who are being led by them will follow similarly. Can I tell you that we look around our world and we see stories periodically of ministry leaders who have high positions of influence. And we see them making some poor decisions We see them falling. Can I tell you that it's not just them that fall in that moment. Many times, listen, there's a generation of people who looked up to them, who respected them, who read their books, who listened to their podcasts, who watched them on YouTube, who, if they were within a couple of hours of a place that they were going to be preaching, they would drive and make the effort to be there, who had them sign their Bibles, uh, who, who looked up to them, revered them, and respected them. And when they fell, those people, listen, those people fell also, many of them. I want you to know that here in the nation of Israel, we have Hophni and Phineas, two men who are given positions of influence. And isn't any wonder that when the children of Israel failed in battle, they thought to themselves, oh, all we need is just a, a good luck charm, because that's what the ministry had become. That's what the tabernacle had become, and it had become... A place where we just go when we when we have opportunity when we we go there because we have to we go there because there's some holiday or celebration we do not go there to meet with God to worship God to hear from God we go there out of habit we go there because well we're commanded to do so but we don't actually have an expectation that anything holy or spiritual is going to happen there can I tell you those of you that are preparing again oh how desperately we need spiritual leaders but here's what we need more than anything It's not, we don't need a number of spiritual leaders. We need, we need spiritual leaders who are genuine, who are authentic, who are committed, who are holy men and women of God, who know how to walk with God, who love the Lord, who are not living some type of a double life, ministering in public, but in private, their lives are a mess, their lives are destroyed by wickedness and sin. I remind you, the Bible says, be sure your sin will find you out. That is so very true. Oh, you can hide it for a time. But God is, listen, God is in the business of bringing things to the surface. And God is capable of dealing with you, dealing with me, and the secret sins that we allow. And and understand that, listen, when we tolerate those things in our lives, it's not just us who's affected. No man is an island, especially a ministry pastor, leader, spiritual leader. None of us, listen, none of us can, can just go about and do whatever we want to do and just fall alone. When a man or a woman who leads in a ministry effort falls, oh, listen, it affects all the people that are under him. So their approach to the ark, it was marred. It was not what it should have been because of their spiritual leaders. Can I say, secondly, that their approach to the ark was that it was an object of furniture rather than the seat of God's presence. Their approach to the ark was that it was an object of furniture rather than the seat of God's presence. Let me ask you this question. What... What was it that made the ark special? Was it it the gold that overlaid the wood inside and out? Was it the fine craftsmanship of the man who had crafted the seraphim that covered the mercy seat? What made the ark so special? Was it the Ten Commandments that lay inside? Was it the rod that budded? Was it the golden pot that would have housed the manna during that, that period of time? Can I tell you that what made the ark unique was not any of these things, but what what these things represented. The ark was special because it was the place where God chose to dwell on this earth. That's what made the ark special. It wasn't the gold. It wasn't the historic contents inside. It wasn't the craftsmanship. It wasn't who made it. None of those things made the ark special. What made the ark special was God's presence. And can I say that without God in the equation, the ark was just another box, which interestingly enough was what it ended up becoming in this story. For if we read a little bit further, notice the Bible says in verse number 10, on the next day when the ark of the covenant was introduced to the battlefield, look what happens. And the Philistines fought. And Israel was smitten, and they fled every man into his tent. And there was a very great slaughter, for there fell of Israel 30,000 footmen. Let me ask you this question. Did the the halftime adjustment of fetching the Ark of the Covenant and bringing it into a battle, did did it accomplish what the children of Israel thought it was going to accomplish? No, in fact, fact, they didn't just lose 7,000 the next day. The Bible says that they lost 30,000 the next day. And they probably licked their wounds and headed back to their camps. And they said, what is going wrong here? I mean, we, we have the Ark of the Covenant. We were for sure to have victory. We were guaranteed victory. We had the box. We had the Ark. We had this piece of furniture. Can I say that this Ark made no discernible difference in the outcome the next day? Why? Because it was just a box searching for a path to victory, they chose, listen, they chose to seek the help of an object of furniture rather than seeking God himself. Do you see that in verse number three? Look what it says there again. Let us fetch the ark. Notice the last phrase. The Bible says, it may save us out of the hand of our enemies. Think about this for a moment. These are the people of God. They're saying, what, what can we do differently? How can we, how, how can we guarantee ourselves? I know what we can do. Let's bring a piece of furniture into the battlefield. and Let's hope and let's trust in this piece of furniture to give us the victory, to give us the help that we need. I'm here to tell you that what they were missing was something much more important. They were missing the presence of God. What would have been like if they would have, the night before, if they would have fallen down on their faces and repented of their sin and said, God, we have sinned. God, we have tolerated things in our lives and in our country that we should never have tolerated as your people. God, we repent of our sins. God, we get right with you. God, we're trusting in you. If there's going to be victory tomorrow, if there's going to be saving, it's not going to come in the form of a box in the form of a piece of furniture, it's going to come because you decide to give it to us. I tell you, 2020 has caused ministry, all of us in our ministry efforts, it's caused us to have to come out of our box, so to speak, hasn't it? And I'm even, I'm standing here, last time I was here preaching in chapel, we were in this building behind me. Life was a whole lot different back in those days. The word, words like masks and social distancing, we'd really, we really never thought a whole lot about. It wasn't anything that we'd ever had to do. And churches went, this season, this year, churches went, some of them, some of them went months without meeting. As the pastor of the Cleveland Baptist Church, we closed our church down like many churches did on Sunday, really, March the 22nd. We didn't open back up again until Sunday, May the 17th. Of course, we're in a little bit of a different area and things aren't quite as maybe as intensely de- dealt with as it is here in California. Some of you, you come from some of those areas in which you know life has sort of already gotten a little bit back to normal in those places even though there's just a spirit of fear that exists. And I can remember during those periods of time going to church during those Sundays and standing there in our, in our, in our auditorium before a mostly empty building. And I remember preaching my heart out and, and, and thinking to myself, you know, is is this going to accomplish anything? Is anything going to happen here? And, and then I remember we reopened the church, and what a glorious day that was! People came back, and it was a wonderful, wonderful Sunday. I know mean, we're still missing some people. Don't misunderstand me, but we're, we're functioning, we're moving forward. And I asked, I asked the question: what makes what makes the church building special? Is, is it is it the pews and the the furniture and the carpet and the platform and the sound equipment and all those things. You no, know, listen, listen, listen. What makes, what makes that building special is that's the building where we meet with God. We, we, can, we can meet with God outside like we're doing today. We can hear from God. Listen, we don't have to have all of these things for us to do a great work for God. You, you you some of you you're going to you're going to leave this ministry and you're going to go to a place and you're going to serve the lord and you're going to think to yourself you know I'm not making much of an impact I'm not doing a whole lot because well, well, to be frank, you know, there's not a whole lot of people here and, and we're not, we don't have the buildings and we don't have the property and we don't have the, all of the, the things that perhaps we had when I was in Bible college. And I just want you to know something. Listen, that doesn't make the work of God legitimate. That doesn't make the work of God special. The work of God can exist outside of the box that we have created for them. We went, we went weeks months some churches went months without physically meeting and we thought to ourselves can we really do a work for god during this period and i just want you to know something i think in some respects perhaps during 2020 we will have preached to more people than we would have preached had we not gone through this period of time as people sat in their homes scared to death to leave their homes scared to death to contract some virus and die and think to themselves you know there must be something more to life than what I've been living for. And it's Sunday, and I wonder if there's a church that's broadcasting. I wonder if there's a church that's preaching a message of hope and of healing and of comfort. And even though they never entered the doors of this place, God met with them in their homes and in their living rooms, and God got a hold of their hearts and God got a hold of their lives. Listen, here's what I'm trying to say. We sometimes, we like to confine ministry to our little boxes. And if we don't have this, and if we don't have that, well, then we can't do what God's called us to do. And I just want you to know something. The work of God goes on apart from the box. The work of God does not require all the things that sometimes we think it requires. And, and listen, the work of God, is it, is it, is it, it's not necessary for us sometimes to have all of the things that we think we must have. Can I tell you that this is convicting? Because our, listen, our approach to ministry and service is, is often devoid of god and listen when i when, when that's my approach when, when i think okay we're going to have a good sunday today because we've got this special lined up and and i've got my message and it and it's all alliterated it's my Hey, man, there's some things here that I've never seen before. And, and uh, boy, I'm going to stand and I'm a, I, I can communicate. I've got a few, a few cute stories and I've got a, a funny joke to begin with. And, and we've got some, some clever music that's going to set the mood. And we've got uh, the sound system is working well. And we're going to be able to broadcast and, 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 and use the internet. And we have all of these things in place. And, and surely God's going to bless us because we've put all of this work and all of this time into it. And I'm just here to tell you, listen, God, God, God can do things without all of those things. There are churches all over this world that don't have a roof over their heads that are meeting like you're meeting today. And they're, just not, they're not just doing it during the COVID era. They've been doing it for years. And they've got maybe, maybe some walls, but maybe they don't have a, a roof over their heads. Perhaps they don't have hymn books, and they don't have screens, and they don't have amplification systems. And they don't have nice podiums and pulpits. And they don't have beautiful uh, instruments and pianos and, and, and stringed instruments and, and, and all of these things that sometimes we think are necessary. And they don't have padded seating to sit in. And, and they don't have gorgeous lights. And they don't have climate control. And, and yet, listen, listen, God's still doing the work in those places. God's still doing something great. He's still doing something wonderful. Can I say that if we think that the work of God, listen, if we think that the work of God is not going forward right now because of all the restrictions that we're dealing with, then, listen, our view of God is much smaller than it ought to be. Because God specializes, He specializes in doing incredible things during the most difficult and challenging and unusual circumstances. I'm afraid sometimes our approach to the work of God Similar to the approach of the children of Israel. How, how can we have a big Sunday? Fetch the ark. Make sure that we have all the things in place. Make sure the grass is cut. Just Make sure that we have the nicest promotional material. Make sure that we're giving away some really cool things, that we're bringing in some really unique speaker. May, make sure that we have the best music lined up. And I'm just here to say that sometimes we go through all of these steps and we go through all of these things, and the one thing that we forget is to fall down on our faces before God and say, God, we so desperately need you to work. We sometimes fall into the same habit and pattern that says, just fetch the ark. Just fetch the ark, and everything will be fine. Notice, thirdly, their approach to the ark was rooted in ignorance and not reality. Look at verse number 5. And when the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted with a great shout so that the earth rang again. So here they are. Let's make the adjustment. What do we need? We need the Ark. Somebody go get the Ark. Somebody goes running down the path. They go to Shiloh and they pick up that Ark and they run as fast as they can back to Ebenezer where the children of Israel are camped. And as man, they can see them from, from afar, it looks like there's four men coming in. And, and it looks like they're, 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 it's shining in the sun. It's gleaming. I, I, I bet that's it. I, I bet that's the ark. And, and, and somebody shouted, the ark is here. And somebody else said, hallelujah, the ark is here. And they all began to shout. And they began to, "Hey, man, we have the ark. Our victory is secure. And yet they had no idea that all they had, listen, was just a really historical box. They had a really expensive piece of furniture, but they, 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 they didn't, that's all they had. That ark was not about to make any difference. Look in verse number six. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, what meaneth the noise of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews? And they understood that the ark of the Lord was coming to the camp. And the Philistines were afraid, for they said, God has come into the camp. No, God had not come into the camp. Just a really expensive piece of furniture had come into the camp. But God wasn't there. The Hebrews shouted, the Philistines were close enough to hear the shout, and they deduced that the shouting was due to the arrival of the ark, and they feared because they had known that the ark was the place where God's presence dwelt. And they made this statement, God had come into the camp. In this instance, listen, the pagans, the pagans knew more about God and what was needed, and even the children of Israel knew at this point in time. The pagans were the ones that said God had come into the camp. Listen, the children of Israel, God's own people, they were the ones that said the ark come into the camp there's a difference between those two children of israel were ignorant believing believing that this ark was going to provide some some special power and ability for them but in reality god had not come into the camp just a really expensive and historic piece of furniture was there and they continued in this ignorant delusion until the next day when everyone was faced with the reality that god listen god And his presence was nowhere to be found, in the camp or in that box. Again, how often do we assume, because we have the right objects, because we have the right things, that we should also have the power and presence of God? Can I say that a a nice suit and tie does not equal the presence of God? Ladies, a, a modest dress does not equal the presence of God. Can, can, I, can I tell you that a, a conservative hymn or song that is sung does not assume automatically God's presence? Can I tell you that a, a, a big offering doesn't assume God's presence? Can I tell you that a, a big day with lots of visitors and lots of people doesn't automatically assume? It just might mean that we've, we've made some really good plans and we've work, worked really hard. But can I tell you that apart from the presence of God, it's all for naught? The presence of God, listen, is not confined to the boxes that sometimes we like to confine it to. The presence of God is found in relationship. It's found in falling down on our faces, confessing our sin and repenting of our sin and begging and pleading and praying that God would fill us with His power and with His Spirit and standing behind a pulpit like this and being completely and totally dependent upon Him. See, you'll find that as you go forward in ministry that it can become easy sometimes to go through the motions. You've done it so often. You can stand behind a a pulpit and you can deal with just about any challenge that might come along. And you've got a story and an illustration for every scriptural truth that you can think of And you've got lots of verses memorized and you wear really nice suits and your shoes are really nice and polished and expensive and and you've got a really nice sanctuary and you've got a beautiful parking lot and nice landscaping and everything is 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 just perfectly manicured and and you've got a beautiful family and, and and you've got great musicians in your church and you've got really hard workers and sometimes sometimes it's easy to begin to trust in these things and to believe, oh, listen, God is going to do a great work where we are because look at all that we have in place. We have gifted musicians, and I, I've preached for a while, and I'm pretty comfortable standing behind a pulpit and developing a message, and we wear the right clothes, and we sing the right kind of songs, and we have the right kind of Bible, and we've got lots of money coming in, and we begin to trust in those things, and we leave, listen, we leave God far behind, and then we wonder. Why don't we have God's power? Why aren't we making an eternal impact? Why is it that we have these big days all planned and we gave away some really cool things but didn't really seem to make much of an impact? Not too many people were saved or those that got saved, maybe they didn't come back the next week and we've not seen or heard from them since. Is it possible, listen, that we fooled ourselves into thinking, listen, that the power and presence of God are in things. Things, talents, abilities, furniture, buildings, gifts. I tell you, listen, the the power, the ability is not in any of those things, but it's in the presence of God. And what they were missing on this day was not a box, a piece of furniture. They were missing the very presence of God. Let me say fourthly and finally here today, their approach to the ark had become an idolatrous hindrance. The Bible tells us in verse Number 11, on this day, not only did 30,000 men die, but the ark of God was taken. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were slain. A messenger went running back in verse number 12, came to Shiloh to, to share the news of what had happened. You know the rest of the story. Eli, he heard his boys were slain, and that was troubling enough. But when he heard, listen, when he heard the ark was taken, the Bible says that he fell off of the stool that he was sitting on, he broke his neck and he died. Now listen to what, listen to the commentary in verse number 22. This is, this is the wife of, uh, of, of Hophni, and look what she says. She gives birth that day. I'm sorry, Phinehas. says in verse number 22, and she said, the glory is departed from Israel for the ark of God is taken. Can I just be real frank with you? The glory had departed a long time previously. The glory, the glory had been gone for a long time. The glory had not departed on this day. They just didn't know it yet. They, they were functioning as if the glory was still there. The glory, the glory had been gone for a long time. This was, just, this was just a physical manifestation of the fact that the glory had departed. You see, you see, listen, God, God had left a long time prior. They never knew it. Why? Because the ark was still there. As long as the ark's still here, God's still here. As long as I do all of these things, as long as I have all of these gifts and all these talents, well, then I'm, I'm assured of, of blessing, I'm assured of power, I'm assured of influence. The moment that those things are gone, well, well, well then I, I can't have the power. No listen, listen, God was gone a long time previously. The ark, The, the, the day the ark was taken was not the day that the glory of the Lord had departed. When the ark was taken, only then did they come to the conclusion that the glory had departed. But the glory had departed a long time previously. I'm begging with you. I'm pleading with you as we conclude this morning to understand. Listen, that the power of God is not found in programs. It's not found in clothes. It's not found in conservative or liberal. It's not found. In, listen, it's not found in those things. It's found in relationship. It's found in doing the work. Spending time and walking with God. And you can, listen, you can have everything that your heart could possibly desire. You could have property and you could have lands and you can have bank accounts and you can have talent and you can have ability. And yet the glory can still be gone. The glory, listen, the glory is in is in is in a relationship. It's in the power of God. It's not in things. It's not in boxes. It's not in pieces of furniture. And may God help us to understand that. I don't know what you're going through, but you may be tempted to say, here's what I need to do, I need to fetch the ark. I tell you, you don't need to fetch the ark. You need to get on your face before God, and you need to repent of your sin, and you need to get right with him, and you need to invite his presence and be completely and totally dependent upon him, and in those moments, you'll rediscover. What I was missing wasn't a piece of furniture or a to-do list. What I was missing was the very power and presence of God